Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm the Harper machine learning expert with over a decade doing machine learning. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Jenny Lamont. So we've got a bit of an international flavor today. She's up in Canada and she has been in product for about two decades, which a decade of that has been doing data work, of data and product. Uh, her background is in um, engineering and product, and she's also got a master's in AI management. So really varied situation there. And she's currently co-founder and CEO of Vivid Machines, um, a startup serving the fruit farmers of the world. So Jenny, glad to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, both of you. Really excited to be here today. So we haven't had many product folks on the podcast today. So I think we've got here to start. Tell us sort of how you got into product and what, what it is that you love and how that's added your journey. Yeah. It was like a bit of a winding journey. So I started off in engineering and did consulting for a few years. And then much to my father's dismay, I was like, this isn't very exciting. Um, so I went back to school and did a fine arts degree in design. <clears throat> um, and then kind of after graduating that, I had this sort of combination of engineering and, and design expertise. And a friend called me up and said, hey, there's this job and we think you'd be good for it. It's product manager at a media company. And I was like, what? Um, so I went and I loved it because it's sort of the, you know, what I, I found was it was the intersection of working with customers and determining the customer need, but having to understand the technology and working with engineering teams and then, you know, working with sales and marketing. And then there's sort of a creative aspect to it. So I felt like it really blended everything that I'd been working towards. Um, and I just loved, um, it's almost like a mediation position. <laughs> so sort of bringing that um, sort of EQ uh, to the table along with all the technical knowledge uh, was just something that I, I love to do. And so that's how I, I started uh, that part of my career. That's interesting because EQ has become increasingly talked about, especially in the tech fields, you know, in the last sort of, you know, even, even five years, really. Yeah, you kind of got in there from the product side. Do you feel there are kind of good lessons in EQ that the kind of more engineering folks can learn from the product folks? Oh, Interesting. Um, I would almost, <laughs> I'd put it both directions. Uh, I, I feel like it's, it's the, the, there's always tension between sales folks and engineering folks. They're both like kind of trying to run really quickly um, in parallel directions, but not always understanding sort of the other side of the fence and the challenges they face to, to deliver. Uh, so I think empathy is, is really important, but also, um, you know, if I could, suggest and we do this here with our team is we get our engineering team out to the field with Palmer and we get our field team in the office with the engineers uh, so that both you know groups of people really understand the work that the other group is doing and sort of build that understanding and empathy for how hard everybody is working and how much there is to learn uh, across the board um, so yeah I think that's a, a really important part of doing product well 
And that really, that's actually also very interesting because, you know, when, when I'm building a machine learning model, I'm building it for a person or for a process or for, you know, often a person that doesn't care how the sausage is made, what a better turn of phrase. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I always find it really helpful to be on the ground talking or showing that person kind of what's possible, understanding the workflow, understanding the, the data. Um, do you find that it helps everybody understand their data better by actually seeing the source, like actually the fields and seeing here's actually where it gets generated? A hundred percent, because in, in fruit farming, and we'll get to this later, a lot of the processes are still really manual. So growers and their labor are out there with click counters and calipers counting and measuring fruit. And you don't really understand how difficult that is until you go out and try and do it. Hmm. Well, last week I was in Washington State and there is, you know, the fruit is like maybe three millimeters, you know, like not even a quarter of an inch. And there's like 1,300 on a tree, like hidden between leaves. So each tree, you know, 45 minutes on a ladder counting these fruit. And you start to understand, oh, this is why they want computer vision to, <laughs> to deal with this problem because it's so humanly difficult. Um, but you can't, you don't really understand how hard it is until you go and do it. And you're like, this is the worst. This, <laughs> this is really hard. We first met um, when we were with at Sober AI. And I was always really impressed with kind of your with design eye. And also the way that you would, to your point, mediate between the various groups of the company to create a coherent product. How did you find working in that environment and kind of what lessons did you learn? Yeah, uh, you know, so, you know, like at every company, there's good and bad. Um, but the I think what was really important for my career at Cerebri was the pace, like just really understanding uh, how fast you can move with a group of talented people. Uh, because as you and I both know, they're like the talent at Cerebri was really incredible. Um, and so I remember one day, I think it was with Pernoya product manager. I was like, oh, we need wireframes or something. And I'd been at a, a media company where something like that might take a month. Like by the end of the day, he's like, here we go. Here's our wireframes. I was like, what? How did you pull that together so quickly? He's like, well, I talked to the engineers and I talked to some customers and, you know, here's the first draft. And I was like, holy mackerel. And you just got an idea of how quickly you could pull things together in a in a quick way and then iterate essentially um and that was a really great lesson for me because i'd never seen a company work so quickly before but also effectively uh, which i thought was really cool what do you think it was about either company or about you know, in particular that kind of enabled that pace to happen compared to say a more traditional media company where things were slower for whatever reason yeah. And then here back to the good and bad, I think it was, you know, the leadership setting customer meetings at a frantic pace. You had no choice but to deliver in some respects. So great. In some ways, a really awesome management tool. Um, you know, and you're like, hmm, how do I get this team to move faster? Well, I'm going to book a customer meeting, um, but also put a lot of pressure on the team. But definitely there was, you know, expectations to deliver things to customers and you just really had no choice but to be creative and get stuff done. So yeah, I thought it was very interesting. So I, I remember kind of LinkedIn stalking you um, after you found left Cerebri and seeing that, you know, your post Cerebri, you did some very, very different stuff um, to what you'd done yeah. before. Um, was I correct there? Um, and if so, <laughs> um, what, uh, what, 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 what led to that? 
Yeah. So I am um, one of somebody I'd worked with, one of the executives, I think he might have been the publisher at the time of you know, one of Canada's biggest media companies had reached out saying, hey, come back to work for us. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, no, no, we've got this like great job. You can run all the product. It's going to be really awesome. And so I went back and worked in media for a brief time. And that's where I was like, what am I doing? Um, and then my son at the time was 10 years old. And so he said to me one day, mom, like, what do you, what do you do for a job? And at the time, really a lot of the work I was doing was around ad targeting. Um, and so I was sort of feeling like, oh my gosh, like I am not making the world a better place. And, you know, now's a time in my career where I could, you know, my son's old enough. I've got great family support. Like I just, things had come together where I was like, I can make some choices here. Um, and I'd grown up on a farm. Um, and just kind of always throughout earlier parts of my career, you know, I wanted to do environmental engineering and was really into the agricultural side of things. And, uh, so after that conversation with him, I was like, mm, this, is, this is not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. I'm passionate about product, but I really want to be building products that make an impact. Um, and so at the time I was also wrapping up my master's in management of AI, um, which, I'd gone into because I really think it's important for people who do products to understand the technologies they work with. Um, and so that program was sort of, you know, some light coding because <laughs> I'm not very good at it, but get, get my hands dirty as well as, you know, strategy around um, managing AI. Um, and uh, so, you know, wrapping that up. And then my father actually saw this ad for something called Entrepreneur First. And I was like, what is this thing? Um, and it just kind of all came together. So I applied, I think, on the Tuesday. I was graduating on the Friday. I had a couple of uh, interviews for Entrepreneur First and then started the program on the Monday. And we can talk a bit about that. So it just kind of was a moment in my life where I was like, I'm, I want to I wanna make a difference and, and I'm in a place where I can. So I'm going to change not what I do, but what I work on. So Entrepreneur First is an interesting program. I suspect most people... Everybody listening to this probably hasn't heard of it or doesn't know what it is. And so could yeah. you give us some background on kind of what that is and kind of why you decided to, to do it? So Entrepreneur First call themselves a global talent investor. And they, they look at investment from a really early stage. So they would say pre-idea. So what they're investing in is people. So kind of taking that early stage investing and, and rewinding it even earlier. So the idea is that you go into the program and they bring together uh, the cohort that I was in was 50 people and they try and select people that have, you're on a spectrum of very, very technical. Uh, so you might be in research uh, of a, in a particular field or, you know, generally that um, or in the middle. So kind of more, uh, okay, you're building software and products. So, and then, you know, people like me that are way more product business. Um, without sort of that technical background. And the concept is you come in around an edge. So an edge being like, what is something that, you know, you can meet with another person about and you have this combined skill that nobody else would have, a combined expertise or passion. And so, and then they have this culture of, if you can uh, collaborate for two or three days, determine if you're productive, if not, break up. And they celebrate these breakups. And then you try working with another potential co-founder. So when I went in, it was just at the end of my master's, I built this like medical chatbot for grade eight level English, helping my kids at the time. 
uh, kids understand, you know, things like STIs and, and other health information. And I thought, okay, I'd really like to do something around health. And then I met all the really smart people in the program who had these different uh, areas of expertise. And I met Jonathan Venus, my co-founder on day one, um, you know, PhD in physics. He'd been at Mila doing his postdoctoral studies with uh, Yoshua Benjo and, you know, also had this like passion for hardware and optics. And, you know, with my design background, I'd done a lot of industrial design. I was like, wow, we, you know, we both love hardware. We're both into machine learning. You know, his family had an organic fruit business in Europe. I was like, hmm, we're both into egg. So we said, well, why don't we try partnering up and see if we can find a problem that we can solve? Um, and unlike the other groups, Jonathan and I never broke up. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're still working together. Um, and we just uh, were really, really different people. And it was a cool environment because he's not somebody I would have ever met in the other parts of my life. And the nice thing about the program is that they require you to quit your job, leave your PhD, whatever it is. So people committed at least for the eight to 12 weeks that you might be in the program to really focus on, can, can you build a company where you can find product market fit? And I think that's the hard thing. I think you know, a lot of people want to start companies and they you know, are looking for co-founders, but being able to carve out that time uh, to, to focus on it is always a really challenging part, uh, especially you know, as you uh, later in life, as you have more and more responsibilities. Um, so, uh, so Entrepreneur First was fantastic for us. They, they brought in venture partners. Every week you sort of iterate and you present. And I think Jonathan and I took the approach of, hey, we, we've, we've, we're working really well together. Like even if this doesn't work out with EF, we have an idea uh, about the business. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, after two or three hundred phone calls and some, some customer visits, uh, we landed on an idea and founded Vivid Machines. So yeah, it was a, it's a really interesting program. Before we got to Vivid Machines, from um, what I understand, not everyone finishes the program off. So kind of what does that look like? How does it trim down? Yeah. Because not everyone's going to have ideas, not everyone's going to be compatible. Some people just won't necessarily have it back to whatever that is. Yeah. So how does that kind of, how does that work? And how kind of, yeah. how many people finish the program? Um, I think maybe 30 or 40% might finish. And so the way it works is you have eight weeks to find a co-founder um, and come up with an idea. And so at the end of the eight weeks, there's, you know, there's a lot of people that come out that really haven't found the right co-founder and maybe haven't landed on an idea they're excited about. So that's sort of gate one. Um, and, you know, a bunch of people drop out at that point. And then the second part is you have another four weeks to prepare for investment committee. Um, and EF sort of changes their model over time. So it might be slightly different in how they invested in us in Canada. Than, and, and now they, they're no longer in Canada. They've kind of moved to the, the Bay Area. But um, so you've got this four weeks to prepare for an investment committee, which is actually really great training for when you go to raise money because most of the time you're going through an investment committee. And so, you know, and part of that is demonstrating customer traction and product market fit. And so the investment committee then, they select the companies to invest in, they think has a, has a chance of actually building a billion dollar global business. And that's really, they're very clear about the expectations on day one of the program. You know, we're not interested in businesses unless we believe that you can become a billion dollar global business. 
And so, it, you know, that really, you know, there's some great companies that came out of the group we're in in EF that are still running that EF didn't necessarily invest in because it didn't meet that criteria. But they're actually really great businesses. So and then some people, you know, went on to do other things. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think three or four companies graduated from the program when we were in it. Um, and, you know, there's a, you know, maybe two or three still still operating um, in Canada. But, uh, yeah, they've had some really great successes, I know, in the UK uh, with some of the companies they've invested in in other places, too. So I guess that's a good segue into talking about other machines you know, kind of what, and what you will do. Um, and I'll start by saying congratulations on raising your seed round a few weeks ago. Yes, uh, that, was, that was a real pain in the butt. <laughs> I'm glad to have that done. Uh, and thank you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, through that EF program, we started talking, you know, Donna's and I said, we're interested in agriculture. So we called hundreds of farmers and nutrient companies. And then we started talking to fruit farmers. And the interesting thing is there's companies like John Deere and all sorts of really great equipment manufacturers using AI in various forms in broad acre. So, you know, soybeans, corn, uh, wheat, because everything's really heterogeneous, you know, planted on standard rows, you know, grows the same, pretty, like, you know, it's not exactly the same, but pretty, you know, pretty standard. But when you come to fruit farming, so if we think of apples as an example, which is sort of our beachhead, um, there's, a, you know, hundreds of different varieties of apples. Uh, there's different what they call training systems. So you might have like the, the trees that you see in your storybooks, or you might see something really two-dimensional, like every farm is super different, different row widths, um, which has made it a really complicated problem to bring technology into the, into the field. Now, post-production, a lot of these fruit companies have been using computer vision and machine learning for things like, uh, uh, de you know, defect detection, um, you know, color grading, that sort of stuff. So they are very familiar with, you know, high tech equipment. It's just in the farms, on the farms themselves, you know, we're talking about environments with no cell connectivity a lot of the time and just so much variability that it's made robotics um, and vision and other problems really difficult. But in the last sort of five to 10 years, because of the expense of labor, the people sort of running the horticulture side of things, like horticulture research coming out of the universities along with the growers, have been really thoughtful about how do we change our farms to be more hospitable to, you know, eventually implementing robotics. So one of the most interesting things I saw in Washington State last week was cherry trees grown very two-dimensionally. Their walls of fruit. Before, I'd only ever seen three-dimensional trees. And, and same with, you know, apples over the last 10 years have been converting from these, you know, big brown trees to these more two-dimensional systems. And one of the challenges for farmers is these trees live for decades. So if they have to rip them out, they're, they're ripping out, you know, things that are producing cash today, planting things that may take three to five years to produce cash in the future um, in the hopes that, you know, everything becomes more efficient. Uh, and that takes a lot of capital. And additionally, as, you know, Lee, you know, and I'm sure Sid, you know, too, like the, the machine learning um, frameworks for running on the edge, so kind of running on equipment, not in the cloud, it's only in the last few years that those are becoming more powerful so that you can process and, you know, stuff on 
tons of data without cellular connectivity. And so we've really taken advantage of uh, the fact, okay, great, there's all these new frameworks, there's new hardware, companies like NVIDIA, and then also the way fruit farming is happening is changing. And it's been this crazy mix of things that has enabled us to launch computer vision uh, services, perception services for fruit growers so that they can understand each tree uh, because every tree is different. So it's kind of like, you know, I joke, it's like Google Street View, but for plants. Um, and then take that data and help growers. We're using computer vision. So our first use cases are around, they call it crop load management. So counting and sizing fruit so they know, okay, well, do I need to, you know, what do I need? Do I need to water or should I back off the water or do I need to prune off the trees or how do I tell that, you know, my, you know, Costco or, or uh, Walmart, what yield they can expect from me this year. So we're really helping with that yield prediction and understanding of yield. But there's tons of other use cases like color, uh, you know, when to harvest is really dictated a lot by color or disease detection. Uh, we're collaborating with Cornell on doing disease detection in, um, in grapes. And, you know, part of what we've done is we've, there was really no way of capturing this data. And so Jonathan uh, designed a multispectral sensor that is really cost effective so that we, you know, data being important, it was like, okay, there's no data set on fruit today. So how do we generate one? And it required, gener you know, building the hardware. So now we're capturing data globally on fruit production, starting in apples, but we've done some work in grapes and fruit too. So traditionally, I guess, most people would see fruit farms as being underserved by data products you made in the past, you know, to buy, buy machine learning products. Um, when you kind of come into a new farm, how familiar do you find they are with these technologies? How do you help to increase the maturity curve of adopting these technologies? So they're, they're actually, because of what happens after harvest, they're, they're actually quite familiar with these technologies. And then there have been companies sort of looking at this problem over the last five years, which is good and bad because there's been, the farmers haven't had awesome experiences. Um, so it's kind of educating on how we're different. But this is, you know, every time I go out to a farm, I'm reminded of how important this is for farmers because they're so excited about the technology. They're, you know, they're like, wait, you can maybe detect fire blight with this? Well, that'll save me. You know, I've got 30 people. I've got to come that like walk around these you know, thousands of acres looking for this manually today. Like if you can drive that and do that in a couple hours, that's, you know, they, they, they're really excited um, about the ability to do things that is, you know, they're doing manually today in a much more efficient way. So I think for them, it's less about educating on how they might use the, the technology. They're educating us on how it can be used, but more do they believe it's going to work? Like how accurate it's going to be? Um, you know, can I trust your data? So I think it's like more of a, a trust thing around our predictions and validating that the the data that we're generating is in line with you know, what they might see in the field. Um, so that's really the challenging part. That's a really common thread actually throughout these podcasts. We had Arsha Gupta from Matsutama a few weeks ago, Dorn Brazil. Um, talk about the same thing, you know, like, you know, in different contexts, but, you know, how do you, how do you go about building that trust in data, in machine learning, but it's actually, we've all seen people make big promises in this area that haven't panned out. 
So when you kind of yeah. come in somewhere and they are distressful, right? You said that it burned in the past. Um, yeah. How do you go about building that trust? And what things do you do that kind of try and speed trust um, with digital customers? Yeah. So last year we did a lot of trials and still this year where it's, you know, the growers are, are testing our technology on a small amount of acreage. But I think the best thing that we're doing is we're involving human in the loop. So we actually have a field team in the field sort of collecting data as well, validating the data with the growers. They're like there on the farm weekly. How does it look? Then working with the growers sort of say, does this make sense to you? Um, but in it, and we're able to do that because, you know, it's not quite real time, but we're generating predictions within a few minutes of kind of running part of the field. Um, so we're getting close to real time. So that means the growers can come out, we can scan stuff, and within 15 minutes, we can look at the data together before things have changed. So this has been the challenge in the past is companies who've done this before, who, you know, maybe provided a report three to five days later. Well, stuff's growing every day. So three to five days later is totally different. The fruit may have grown three to five millimeters or it might have been flowers and now it's fruit. Like it, things change so quickly. So part of from a technology perspective, what we've done that I think is so important is provided that ability for the growers to look at, the, you know, almost immediately in the field and validate, oh, okay, you're your system says this tree has 175 apples and I'm going to count this. Okay. It says it's got a high, I count 173. So, okay, I believe it. <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of that happening. And two of the things that I write down as you've been say, as you've been talking, Jenny, is um, empathy and, um, and I'll interchange these two words because I think they're highly related, but hit on keys to your success. It said that interdisciplinary mindset, but you can really only have that if you are curious. So the technology is a vast enabler, but that technology exists and is accessible to many people. So why y'all have had successes over others is keeping, as you say, the customer in the loop, um, being very aware that you just mentioned a key problem that would be easily solved by others tacking on or taking to um, a similar approach, but they, without knowing what the customer needs, right, you and, and being there with them on that journey, um, curious enough to ask those questions. And, and as you point back to other points in your career, you know, bringing the engineers into the sales and sales into the engineering, you know, understand the different perspectives. Um, so, yeah. and that is all a, a cultural aspect um, that, that y'all have been building that vivid machines. You're right. It's actually posted on our website as one of our values. Yeah. Uh, so when Jonathan and I first met through EF, before we even um, before we even talked about launching a company, there's this uh, co-founder questionnaire. I think you can find it online. Mm -hmm. And so we actually started with, and it asks things like, you know, what do you value? How many hours a week do you want to work? Like sort of really practical things. And we realized that what one of the things we care about most is learning and curiosity. Um, and so it's so funny that you uh, picked up on that. But uh, I, I think as a team here, we're, we're very curious. And, you know, it's very problem first rather than technology first, uh, which, you know, you guys, uh, I'm sure... You know, I know Lee. That's something you understand, especially as you 
do more and more consulting, like it's, you know, what are we solving? Whereas machine learning is just one more tool in your toolkit for solving a problem. Um, And this year we've got, you know, an early version of the technology. So there's some human work happening also. But as, as you know, like the customers don't care. They just want the answer. Uh, They don't care how you get there. Um, And so that's something that we often remind the team is like, let's be curious, find the problems. What is the first version of how we deliver a solution to that? Um, And and then, you know, how do we formalize and productize it after? Because it's never going to be what you think it is. (laughs) The solution, you're always going to get it wrong. So let's do version one, test it, um, you know, ask questions and, and be willing to hear the hard heard answers like that sucks or that's not what I wanted or I don't really need that and then figure out where to iterate from there. But yeah, I think curiosity is really, really key. And I, and I would highlight that notion, you know, the, the point that you're espousing there because one of the things that we praise the generative AI, LLMs and other things for is taking in lots of disparate information and then making connections like these Columbo-esque connections that, you know, we failed to see. And yet we could, in some cases, see those things, you know, if we were both more curious and more empathetic. Obviously, there's a scale that the machine can see it that we can't, right? And and at a level of detail that would be really hard for us. Um, but your point on going out to see the different things we have we have the capacity and capability today uh, to do more than you know the machine learning model can because we can observe today we can observe now and we can make the connections now Um, it's a lot harder for something to do and take in the vast array of inputs that we're still capable of doing it's going to happen at some point right but but today it's very um uh, awesome to see that that you're pushing your teams that way. Well, it's interesting, even in terms of like generative AI and stuff, there's always multiple solutions, right, to a problem. It's like a choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, which direction do we go in? Like, how do we best solve this problem? And I really still feel like for a while, humans will probably do a better job of sort of interpreting and then choosing the best direction. Though, you know, I, I do like, use chat GPT for a ton of things, um, you know, from writing code to, you know, uh, you know job descriptions, but you know, as a first version, it's kind of like, okay, well, let, let's get a draft started and then, you know, take it from there. But, um, you know, I, I, I do really think that, you know, that, that, okay, we could do it this way or we could do it that way or this way that you know, there's no right answer. And that's a really hard thing with these problems, which is really different from when I did engineering or it was like, there is a best solution. Um, and that's what I, I loved about sort of the design side of things is there are many solutions that could be great. Um, and you just, you know, you've got to test and figure out which one makes the most sense of all the all these factors. And as you say, so, you know, pulling together all these different connections, Columbo-esque and, and figuring, figuring out what to what to do. That's the interesting part. <laughs> I, I love that phrase that there are many solutions that could be great. Uh, as we are used to in consulting, uh, I would love to see the phrase best practices just kind of go the way of the ghost um, because there's <laughs> lots of good practices. Which practices apply to you? I don't know yet. Let's figure that yeah. out, right? Let's figure out you. And that's why I, totally I love those agree. points. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so totally agree. So Jenny, as we kind of come towards and you know, kind of if you were to look back to yourself, you know, give yourself some advice twenty years ago, or even you know, a new person kind of who wanted to follow your kind of career path. Okay. Um, what advice would you give those people? I would say, like, don't worry so much about where you're going to end up. Like when I was young, I like was really hyper focused on like, what am I doing next? What's going to happen? What is my career path? And I've had this very winding, uh, like ever changing career. And it's actually worked out fantastically. So I think like, you know, follow what you love at that time and it's going to change. Um, and, you know, eventually it does, you know, come together. So, you know, just put a little trust in the universe and, and be passionate about what you do and you'll end up having a great career, I think. What do you feel people misunderstand about data, data transformation, using data to do things? What do you kind yeah. of see people misunderstanding there? I think people think it's linear and easy. Like, they, so like, a couple of things there, like data is never just one set, right? It's never just one source. So figuring out how to bring that together for those in, a, in not in a data culture, and I'm not just talking physically, so that's one thing. But like, you know, Lee, you and I, when we worked at Cerebri, you know, for some of the customers we had there, one of the biggest challenges was silos, like change management. Like, you know, people hold different data sets and, you know, have different visions for that data set and necessarily don't want to share. <laughs> and so I think just sort of understanding that there's, there's a technical component, but there's a huge com human component and, and cultural and and change components to building anything with data um, and that those those human parts are probably even harder than the the technology parts. I think just uh, keeping that in mind is really important. You don't see it until you go and you try and implement something and you're like, wait, but this person has the keys to this data set. They're not playing nice. You know? <laughs> No, it just can be hard, right? You I have convince no someone. idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jenny. Well, thank you very much for being our guest today. This has been a great conversation. I know I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it's been super fun. It's really right. nice. And Jenny, if people are interested in learning more about Vivid Machines, where might they find y'all? Yes, I think the best place to find us is maybe Instagram. So at Vivid Machines, we do post on Twitter. And then we have a website, which is vivid-machines.com. But probably most active with most stuff on, on Instagram. And then, you know, if they have questions or anything, Jenny at vivid-machines.com. Always awesome. happy to chat. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.